My name's Dan Stoloff, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How's it going with you? I can't complain. It's it's been kind of a week over here, but I'm not going to really get into it. If you hey, if you Happy care. Father's Day, by the way. Thank you, Happy Father's Day to you as well. It's been been quite a Father's Day. I, it, it it is the uh, Father's Day Mutual Appreciation Society going on right now. Yeah, uh, although people will be listening to this several days after Father's Day, we are recording on Father's Day because we're such dedicated fathers. My 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 boys asleep, so yeah. <laughs> exactly. So okay. Ilya, who is on the show this week? We've got Dan Stoloff on the show this week, Sweet. which is really awesome. He is a incredibly talented and uh, maybe best known for shows like The Americans and, of course, The Boys. He did uh, years and years of a TV show called Suits. And uh, when we talk about all that stuff. And I have to say, The Boys is awesome. But The Americans, to me, is like a high watermark in television over the last 20 years. It's, it's such a great show. Here, here. So for our close focus, I feel like we've mentioned this before, but it's almost like this developing story that I think is a very interesting thing to cover because the Golden Globes, they've been around forever. Certainly, I grew up aware of them. I didn't really watch them because I didn't like watching drunk old people on television. And now I don't watch them because <laughs> I don't really want to watch drunk people, period. But no, the Golden Globes are, you know, generally like, you know, they, they bring out a, a raucous host like Ricky Gervais and everyone gets drunk and then weird movies like the tourist win awards for reasons nobody can fathom and it's uh, run by a mysterious i'm gonna go out on a limb and say kind of shady group called the hollywood foreign press association that nobody knows anything about yeah that you you summed it up nicely although i gotta say i quite like watching drunk people on television so <laughs> that, i like drunk fair. history i like the golden globes that's so. you know i, I actually i drunk history is great but our we're kind of picking up on a hollywood reporter story about the golden globes about two hollywood foreign press association members resigning calling the group toxic and vowing to form a competing organization you know i was of the mind that you could not defeat the Hollywood foreign press, even when dozens and dozens and dozens of industry heavyweights came out and saying that, you know, they no longer wanted to support them until they committed to institutional change. I was mm. like, you know, they're, they're not going anywhere. And I even had my podcast or our podcast, so I should say, our episode where I was like, I got 15 solutions for you right now how to change yourself. I remember did it they, wasn't did, that long ago. It was yeah. like, like, like two <laughs> months, months ago. You, yeah, uh, wasn't wasn't that long. But I was gonna say that, like, you know, they didn't uh, they didn't call. We didn't hear from them. That, that, no. That's fine. I'm, I'm not now I'm not screwed. offended. But really, it's like not only that, uh, these two members who resigned have essentially come, called them out and called them tone deaf and, and actually said a whole bunch of other things about how essentially they are not actually committed to real change. And it's really just uh, lip service and they communicate only through lawyers and uh, PR firms. And mm. uh, I, I want to read this one quote from the Hollywood Reporter article here just because it, it was so uh, scathing. The two members who stepped down said this, this is according to The Hollywood Reporter, the strategy to let lawyers and a PR firm do the talking has made the organization come across as tone deaf for months now. Only months? Only, yes. <laughs> uh, there's been no contrition, no humility, little recognition of our faults, no inspiring leadership. We do not wish to be associated with a group ostensibly dedicated to honest journalism and free speech that relies on the consultants and lawyers to speak for them in vague legalistic terms. In the spring, there was a window to lead to make clear that we understood how the HFPA could learn from its mistakes, how we could come out healthier through radical reform and radical transparency. That window has closed and Hollywood is moving on. I, I think that's quite scathing. They went from uh, 87 members a few months ago, now down to 83. So clearly these two are not the only two who have left. But I really see that like these people leaving and forming a competing organization, if they can kind of sweep up the industry and get them to all say, hey, you know, uh, thumb their noses at the HFPA and join this new organization, that could do it. That could shut them down. They could, they but, could disappear off. 
Yeah. Pardon my abject ignorance. Have there were there only eighty seven members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association? Yes. That, that and, those and are the people a, who are deciding who won the Golden Globes every year. Yes. As compared and, to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which is literally hundreds, if not thousands of members. Oh, it's thousands. Yes, it's thousands of members in, in the Academy. And in uh, the, the HFPA, it's 87 members and there are no black journalists, which is really kind of like what what uh, sent so up weird. all the. Yeah, exactly. Sent up all of uh, of the start of this stuff. You know, really, HFPA, I, I got to say, I agree with the, with the defectors who want to start up a, a new organization. They had their chance. They had their chance to really kind of step forward. And it seems and like they, that organization will have 80, 89 members. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, they say that actually they, they go on and say they want to create a transparent, professional and inclusive organization for the current and next generation of reporters who simply want to work together without the toxicity. And I am assuming that probably means there'll be more defectors from the HFPA and probably a whole lot of other new people coming into the organization. So we'll see. Well, I'll be very interested. And this is always, you know, this is always my thought not to muddy the waters with Los Angeles local arts garbage, but there is a theater organization called the Los Angeles Stage Alliance, or I should say there was one, and I'm not going to bore everyone with all the details. They had a scandal that I feel like could have been solved with a few heads rolling and a gratuitous apology, and instead the organization just ate itself and ceased to exist. And I know that there's a lot more money in the movies than there is in theater, obviously, but the question that I had was, who will rise and take their place and really for i mean you know there are there are awards shows that are big and legit like the indie spirit awards but in terms of honoring mainstream films you've got the academy awards and you've got the golden globes and then i mean obviously there's there's smaller stuff and then obviously the razzies i shouldn't i shouldn't discount the razzies <laughs> they honor mainstream films maybe better than anyone else but you have some film critic associations you have some stuff like that they they, they well you certainly have a film critic associations state by state but you do wonder if somebody because you don't just become the golden globes in terms of size just because you're good uh in fact i don't know that they were ever good but they were definitely loaded and were able to get lots of celebrities on board and, and i wonder the golden globes got dropped by nbc so it's not like even this year there there's a there's a they're not going to appear if they appear on tv it's not going to be on nbc so it's just interesting to me and i'm curious to see if somebody will take their place if we need someone to take their place do we need another awards show i don't know ricky gervais probably has the money doesn't need the the hosting gig and uh i don't know who who else they go to when he says no lisa lampanelli or you know uh (laughs) who knows Anyway, I'm just interested to see sort of if a lot of people defected from the Golden Globes, would they be able to create an alternate reality Hollywood Foreign Press Association and raise enough money to do something as high profile and new as the Golden Globes? You know, it's it's a great question. I'm not not saying the Golden Globes are new. You know what I'm saying? Something new to replace the Golden Globes. You know, in the multiverse, they've already done it. It's like it's it's on its way. <laughs> Which also goes to uh, because it is Father's Day, new new Rick and Morty. So, you know, uh yeah. definitely oh, yeah. we should check out interdimensional cable to see if there's a uh a, a multiverse version of the golden the, the silver spheres and watch the silver spheres <laughs> award. Uh, according to HBO today is actually uh International Rick and Morty Day. So, you know, there you go. It's 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 totally appropriate. And then it comes right back to the Golden Globes. Anyway. <laughs> uh, all right. So, Ben, let, let's get to the interview with Dan Stoloff. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Dan Stoloff, cinematographer, thank you so much for being on Cinepod, the Cinematography Podcast. How are you today? Thank you. I'm great. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners, viewers. So, so Dan, you've been shooting for eh, a couple of weeks now. Uh, you, you, you've, you've got a long career with a, a million titles. We can't get into your entire back catalog today, but I'm going to cherry pick a few. And one of the things I really want to talk about perhaps the most is The Boys, which is this Amazon series that has the look of sort of uh, big budget, glossy superhero style movies and television shows. But it has this very sort of subversive anti-hero quality, whereas the heroes are not really the heroes of the story. 
And I know you're coming in here now in the second season. Is there anything in particular that you're trying to that you're trying to to bring to the the visual style of the story that further enhances or goes along with this, you know, subversive narrative of like it, we're giving you all the trappings of a big budget superhero, but really we're trying to we're sneaking in a different sort of story. How does the big overarching theme of of the project inform what it is that you're doing? Well, I would disagree that it's a superhero story. Uh, I mean, these people are, quote, heroes. But in reality, as we get to know them, we realize that they're anything but. Our show really is more of a prism with which to look at celebrity, politics, media, and using the superhero genre as a, a kind of a brilliant lens to explain some of these things. In our world, we try to keep it really grounded. We try to not make it too fantastical so that it's relatable. If, for example, superheroes were to exist in society today, this is what it would look like. And this is what might happen to them. And this is what our culture, this is what our society, uh, this is what we would do with them. We would turn them into celebrities. We would exploit them. We would make money off of them. We would track their popularity. We would have charts and graphs and all kinds of things. We'd have reality shows. And this is the world that our show is depicting. What makes it different from a superhero or classic superhero, your Spider-Man or whatever, any one of those superhero things is, you know, when you see Spider-Man, I don't want to pick on Spider-Man. I I could pick anybody, but you see um, Spider-Man throw a bus or something to stop his person. What you don't see are the 53 people who are collateral damage who are killed. And I think probably what inspired this comment, the, the graphic novel, was the thought that, hey, wait, wait a minute, we're just moving along forward in our story. What about the rear view? What about all those people who were killed? What about all the children? What about everything else? And so I think that sparked kind of a, a sense of reflection and responsibility to say, you know, these stories are absurd. These stories are dangerous. These stories are, are fan- fantastical and not true to life. Let's put it true to life and see what happens. And wonderful experiment. And it's been a blast. It really has been a blast. I mean, I could go on. I know you have specific questions, so I'm going to let you sort of drive this. Uh, sure. Okay. Well, it, and it is a lot of fun. And you mentioned a couple of things just a, a moment ago. The show definitely does feel grounded. It feels grounded in reality despite being this conceit that something fantastical is going on, that there is these people, and I'm not going to go into too many spoilers, but there are these uh, superheroes that are being born or created, and the world that they live in is kind of got this dichotomy going on of like super fantastic and also reality. You've got sort of also two competing groups. You've got a group of the superheroes and a group of the essentially anti-heroes. And you've got two different looks that kind of go along with that too. Can you talk a little bit about trying to adjust the worlds, the worlds of the superheroes in the towers and the world of the anti-heroes in, in, in the basement in the shadows? Well, if I could, I would speak to the beginning of the show before I came on board. Um, the first season, there was a distinction. There was a definite distinction, and, and it was a photographic distinction, too, whereas the world of the boys was a little more jagged and handheld and a little rougher looking, whereas the world of the superheroes was a lot slicker. And for risk of oversimplification, the boys' world might be handheld and the superheroes might be steady cam. Now, that said, that's kind of how the show found its origins and began the worlds have started to intersect a lot and the styles, the visual styles have started to intersect a lot. I would say that we do a lot less fluid work now. I mean, there are times like if we're within a, we're, we're, we're in a movie within a movie, we'll use the technique of the movie, which would be big technocrane shots and fluid and all that. Then you cut to behind the scenes and it's going to be more, more handheld and that sort of thing. But as the characters are interrelating and their worlds are meshing and colliding and, and, and everything is sort of collapsing on itself. Everything's gotten a little bit more ragged these days. I know that you're, you're coming into this project second season. You, you didn't set the look, but I definitely feel like you've taken, you've taken the look that was established in first season and uh, you've continued with it, but also applied a little bit of your own, your own spin. And I feel like you're definitely a fan of, of lower key lighting and, and contrast. And can you talk about a little bit how you're changing the, the light level or the feeling of different qualities of light, depending on if you're in the, the tower, the worlds intersecting, or in, in the basement, so to speak? You've got these different, you know, 
a few like uh, distinctive looks going on and they are blending together. But how do, how do you approach those? Well, you know, I never set out, I never set out consciously to change the look. I, I, I came on board and I loved the way the show looked and I, I felt like there was more that could be done with homage to the graphic world, the graphic novel, novel that there were certain frames. In fact, in my meeting um, with Eric Kripke, my initial meeting, I brought up like 50 images from the comic books. And I said, these are really cool frames that I feel like you're missing this opportunity. And a lot of them were, were graphic. They were uh, pure black silhouette, uh, butcher in the foreground and a park bench in the background. And it was very, it was very liberating in a lot of ways because it was very extreme. And I felt like the look of the show was great, but I felt like it, I felt like there was more that we could do without turning it into a comic book movie. But there, there is this, you know, we do owe lineage to, to this style. And, and I wanted to try to draw some of that back into the show. You know, and as far as the low key, I just, I prefer naturalism. And if a scene feels uh, emotionally dark or if the environs lend themselves to that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in that direction. That's just my default. That's my Eastern European heritage, maybe. I don't know it. I just love the chiaroscuro and the richness and the darkness. So I'm going to gravitate towards that. Now, that being said, this show gives us the opportunity to do so many different things that exist within the world that we have to do our homework and we must be true to that, to what that world is, whether it be a commercial that's playing, whether it be a newscast, which we shoot all our own newscasts, whether it be, um, I mean, this season we did, not to get too in detail with it, but we did like a Grammy Awards sort of thing. And so it was an opportunity to do live event lighting on a big scale that I've never had to do before. Uh, then there's the Dawn of the, uh, Dawn of the Seven, which you saw in season two, the beginning of it, where we got to like strap on and make a real hero movie and give it a look and, you know, push it really hard and, uh, and, it, and it was great because, you know, it, it's so different. The next day I might be doing a scene in a grungy uh, uh, garage. It might be a back alley. It could be a house in the country. We go to so many different places within 60 miles of Toronto uh, to create our world that uh, it's never boring and it's never the same twice. So I try to sculpt it and shape the performers to give it as much, as much dimension as I can. You know, it's a it, we're taking a three-dimensional world and we're, we're presenting it in two dimensions to have the illusion of three dimensions. And that's always a challenge for me, whether it be with camera movement or whether it be with lighting or whether it be subtractive lighting. By that, I mean darkening something, putting a big black wall up next to, next to an actor so that only the light from the left side is reaching his face on the right side. It stays very dark. I do that a lot. I do a lot of that. And I have in my, in my career all the way back. Uh, you, you brought up some of the the fun stuff that you get to do the movies within the movie the the shows with the you know the the TV within the the TV show I think this is actually this is really fertile ground here because the boys has a it has a glossy look just sort of in general it doesn't feel like you know a, a small independent production or it doesn't feel like you know it, it was low budget it feels big budget but then when you do cut into you know the hero feature film that is inside the series there is a a very distinctive shift that happens can you talk a little bit about what makes what what elevates what changes that look there to make it feel more like cinema besides you know letterboxing what what other techniques are 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 you getting into are you getting into shallower depth of field are you getting into anything else that's like the telltale you know the thing that an audience is going to clue into, what is it for you that, that clues in the, the big budget look? I think it's a cumulative thing. I don't think it's any one thing individual. And the other thing is the contrast, of course, that makes it suddenly pop. And to give you an example, to go back to season two in episode five, yeah, with the Dawn of the Seven episode, we're in the movie. We're very much in the movie. It's, it's long takes. It's a big, long techno crane shot, which is not something that in our world we do a lot of. So that's a part of it. It's heavy backlight. It's the scope and scale of the set with the bus on its side and the police car and the fire and the explosions, the crashed helicopter. It's all of those elements, the giant painted backdrop. Um, It's all those elements. It's cumulative. And then when you cut to the director saying, cut, 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 and he walks out, it's a color change. It's a technique change. It's still the same lensing. I'm using anamorphic lenses, which 
you know, which are the same lenses that, say, Steven Spielberg used to shoot E.T. So there's a kind of classic, old-school look to, to what we do. In that case, it's, it's a, that world is anamorphic that I'm creating. When we do another world that might be a television talk show, I use spherical lenses and shoot it at 16 by 9. So that it, within its DNA, we're being true to the source material. We're really, like, we're digging as deep as possible to try to make it as authentic as possible. And I think the answer is it's cumulative. It's not one thing. It's all of those things. It's the LUT. It's the way we made it look sort of yellow, black and white, kind of weird, like no world ever looks like that. Maybe Mars does. But in our experience, that's a fantasy. That's a popcorn munching weekend, hot day, (laughs) summer fantasy. The reality, it's a little cooler. It's less saturated. The camera's bouncing on the shoulder of the operator, Adam Tupper, not to negate anything. Adam does, he is one of the smoothest handheld operators. Oftentimes I have to tell him to make it look more handheld, you know, stumble a few times, make, make a mistake. The focus pullers, overcorrect and come back. Let it be spontaneous. Be late. Be late for your pull. Don't pull. Don't, don't pretend you know the dialogue. Wait for the dialogue and react to it. So it's all those kind of details. Whereas in the Dawn of the Seven movie, those focus pulls would be right on the breath. They would be dialed in, it would have a, so, so it's all of that stuff, all that, all those little details added together, I think make it look different from, a, a make, make the uh, episodes within the episodes look different. Yeah, I, I think so too. Uh, I'm going to steal a question actually from uh, my co-host of this program. He loves to ask this, but um, when approaching any sort of scene, do you initially try to find a frame and then light within the frame? Or do you try to bring light to an environment and then find the frame within the scene after it's been lit? Wow, that's such an interesting question. I see them as so interrelated. I don't really see where one begins and one ends, to be honest with you. It all kind of comes together for me. Oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes we'll start with a master, which is great because it sort of sets the tone for the whole scene. It's more broad. It sets the environment for the light. It sets the logic for the light, uh, which, you know, which you're going to follow through in all of your coverage. So I guess it's all happening. All those neurons are firing spontaneously. I, I couldn't, I couldn't break it down and say which is which. I, it's interesting. I once had an experience where I was alternating with another DP. And uh, one of the operators said to me, you know, it's so interesting, it's so different the way that you and this other person work. He said, as an operator, he would set his lights and he'd say, you figure it out. You find the shot with, you know, you find the frame within the lights. I'm not moving the lights. I was kind of gobsmacked. I was a little bit horrified (laughs) because I don't know. I just see them all as one. I, I don't see one as more reigning supreme over the other. Of course, there's a time when I need the backlight coming in. If he's holding up a vial of a V or whatever, and it's got to be just so, and that's a specific situation. But to me, the frame and the, and the light, they're married together. They're, they're inexorable from each other. Dan, I want to I want to jump back a little bit in time. I guess the first thing of yours that I ever saw on television uh, and saw uh, as it was as it was happening, as it was first run, would have been the state. So I, I was a oh my god! I, wow, you're going way back. <laughs> I was a fan of the state. I, I loved uh, Thomas Lennon and the whole crew. I, I thought I thought it was uh, a lot of really fun sketch comedy happening at that time. Take us back to like that sort of era. You know, really early in your career. How did you get to to that sort of thing? Give give us your backstory. Give tell, tell us how. You, oh my yeah. god! For the state. Well, let me see. At the time, I was living in New York City. This would have been I'm going to say early '90s. Yeah, that, that's that's when it was. Yeah. I, I had been living and working in Boston and had a moderately successful career as a local cinematographer in Boston. I got a little, I felt a little frustrated. I felt a little boxed in and it was time to go. So I moved to New York and one of my first gigs in New York was working for Broadway Video because I had done a bunch of claymation back in Boston with a company called Olive Jar. and. Broadcast video was doing a lot of was doing a lot of that kind of stuff, plus other stuff. And I, I just kind of got into their roster and I was shooting all kinds of stuff. And somehow or other, around that time, I got a call to do the state. They were shooting 16 millimeter, uh, these sketches that I knew nothing about. And I went and I met the guys. I loved them. I later did a film with Michael Ian Black directing. I worked with Joe on another film. I they, 
our, our, our paths keep crossing and bumping into each other as time goes on. And now this is, you know, this is what, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? It's a long time ago. But yeah, they brought me in and we did a few sketches. The most memorable was Porcupine Racetrack. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was in the style of an MGM musical of the 40s. And it was just a blast. It was the most fun I've I, I'd ever had. I mean, so we were all kids. Those guys were NYU students at the time making the show. And yeah, we spent, it was a one day thing. It was probably 18 hour day um, on a stage that wasn't big enough to do the kind of things that we wanted to do. We had like a tulip crane and we did all these moves. And I just thought these guys are so incredibly talented and so funny. And then I went on and did, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen different sketches from time to time while I was doing commercials and other things in, uh, in New York. All right. Well, well, let's let's jump ahead. I mean, you've got a, a ton of work between the state uh, all through the 90s and into uh, the 2000s until we get to what it was a huge hit for the USA Network suits. Uh, and I know you worked for, for like four years on that show and it has a, a, a glossy, very polished look. I know that you didn't set the look initially for that show, but you uh, definitely did a ton of work of like, you know, I don't know if it was mostly stage or on location, but it's a big budget USA series type of thing. Plot the trajectory of your career between doing indie features and commercials and and all kinds of different stuff to then getting into this, you know, big USA franchise sure. series. Yeah. Sure. The, well, the way that that worked was, um, like you had mentioned in the 90s, I was doing a lot of commercials. I was doing a lot of music videos around 2000, 2010. Sopranos came out and I sort of, my eyes got big and I thought, wow, television, I never even thought of that as a viable artistic expression because at the time television was pretty, you know, it was just not that. It was other things, but it was not that. So what happened was I had been doing a lot of independent features, like mid-level, low budget, like $5 million movies. I'd been doing those one after the other. Some of them did better than others, but then the banking crisis happened in 2008. Things really slowed down a lot. And I found myself wondering what the next thing was. So I had a great friend living in, I was living in LA at the time, living in Topanga. And I had a, a great friend through my, cha, through my daughter, through school and everything else, Michael Cattleman, who's a director, producer. We became fast friends. It took about three years, but he kept trying to get me on. He kept trying to bring this kid on, this kid who had never done TV. And of course, people in those decision-making positions, they don't want to risk anything. It's all about minimization of risk. So it was an uphill battle. Anyway, he got a show in New Orleans called Memphis Beat with Jason Lee and Alfre Woodard. And uh, it was the second and last season of that show. But we went and did that. That was my first foray into television. I'll tell you something, after day one, I said, this is where I belong. I love this. Just the precision of it, the continuity of it. Remember, I had been doing independent features, which meant the financing kept falling through or changing or whatever. This was like, oh, all of a sudden, someone's taking care of us. We don't have to worry about it. We just get to tell our story. So we did that for a season. And on that show, I met a director by the name of Anton Cropper. We became good friends. And Anton went on to do another USA show called Fairly Legal up in uh, Vancouver. And so I went and I did a season of that. That was my second, that was my second show. Sometime towards the end of that season, Anton called me up and he said, uh, I think they're, they're asking me to do Suits. Are you interested? This was season three of Suits. So um, yes, was the answer. So we went to Toronto and I did uh, five seasons, parts of five seasons, about 50 episodes in all. And I felt like Suits was really for me graduate school in a lot of ways. I mean, it was a TV show that existed, fantastic cast that looked amazing, that needed to look amazing in every shot. And it was a joy. It was a lot of fun to, to work with them and to light them. And, you know, it was interesting because one of the, well, the, the lead of that show, Gabriel, on my, like, I don't know, maybe three weeks into my first season, he calls for a meeting with me. He's like, I don't like what, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like... I don't like how dark the side of my face is. One side is light and one side is dark. Why can't both sides be light? And uh, I love Gabriel to death. But, and, and he actually, later he directed a couple episodes that I shot and I just, I just, I just love the guy. But he wasn't, you know, so I showed him some chiaroscuro. I showed him some old paintings. I said, this is kind of more like 
what I'm trying to do. And, you know, he scratched his head and he was a little wary. And of course, these guys are, this is their career and they're trusting us to present them to the world. It's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of pressure. And uh, eventually, I, I think I kind of won him over. I softened it. I softened the contrast. I let the rap happen more gently so that it didn't look so stark. Although there were scenes that I kept it stark for reasons. Late at night, he's working, burning the midnight oil. I light it stark. That's what you do. I mean, that's the right thing for that, for that particular scene. But uh, it was a great journey. And I, I, and I made a lot of friends on that show. And I learned a lot about reflections and glass and shooting through multiple levels of glass. And, you know, and it, and it comes back to me whenever I'm doing, even, even in the boys, we do boardroom scenes and things like that. And I get flashbacks of, oh, how did I do this then? And, and all the fun things you can do, you can shoot from outside the stage in the window. You can do that use the translite as a reflection, it's really fun. There's a lot of stuff you can do. Or using the translite, when I'm not looking at it, I use the translite as a bounce. So the light coming off the sky and off the city has a more naturalistic quality. It, everything blends in. So that secondary light hitting the actor's face off of a big bounce might have some of the cool of the sky. It might have some of the warm, warmth of the buildings. But it's, again, it's a way of getting me closer to to natural, like what is natural? If you're standing in a building and the sun is shining on the, on the block across, what does the light look like on you? I mean, is it, there's a pink building, a yellow building, a red building. I mean, that, all of that, it adds, it's like a big bucket of paint and you're mixing all these colors. But, but that was a great experience for me and a great opportunity to sort of look into the cosmetic aspect. All the stuff I had learned doing toothpaste commercials really came in handy. I mean, it all comes in handy. Everything comes in handy. Everything you ever do as a cinematographer is in your bag of tricks. So, so there are no unimportant jobs. There are no small jobs. You've really got to have that attitude that, you know, even if you get called out to shoot your brother-in-law's bar mitzvah, whatever, make it an opportunity and meet some people because it's a people business. And every, like I explained with getting to suits, there's a journey to every destination that is littered with the relationships that you make. Very rarely in my career have I ever been high. I mean, it's happened, but it doesn't happen as much where I am just a cold call and I get the job. You know what I mean? I do give a pretty good meeting, but if, if you're a director and you've been working with somebody for years and years and the producer says, well, you have to do your due diligence. You have to interview, you know, you have to interview four people. You know, you're in that situation. It's just really hard. It's really frustrating. But a situation like where, where Michael Cattleman or Anton Cropper call me up and say, hey, I've got a show. Are you interested in doing it? That's the joy that these relationships bring. That's a wonderful uh, synopsis and a ton of incredible advice out there to anyone who's just starting out in this uh, in this space. And I got to say that a large demographic for, for our podcast is people who are young DPs or in film school and that sort of thing. So I really hope that our listeners all pay really close attention to all the words that you just said, because so much of your career will be about replicating things that you may have done hastily or quickly or had to, to learn in, a, in the heat of battle in a moment uh, more polished later after you get another opportunity and so many of the same people you meet along your path you'll meet again yeah meet on your way up and the same folks gonna meet on your way down <laughs> that's right um but no but it's very true and it, and you you touched on pigeonholing a little bit which is a really interesting aspect to what we do and has its advantages and disadvantages you know i did a movie called miracle in 2004 and it was a u.s olympic hockey team winning a gold medal in the 1980 Olympics. And it was a very intense, and we took it very seriously, the breakdown of how you shoot a hockey movie. And after that, about 10 years of my career, I was doing sports films. And it wasn't because I wanted to, it wasn't because I had a yearning to, or because it was my, my passion, I enjoyed them, but it was, but I was like, ah, oh, if I'm gonna get stuck in a, uh, if I'm gonna get stuck in a pigeonhole, can it be like film noir, <laughs> you know? Can, you know, it, it happened to be sports, which, which, was great. It took, you know, it took, it took good care of me. 
Um, but that's what will happen. You have to ride it out and then other things come up and you get known for other things. And, and you know, and same people too, like on the most obvious level, like I remember Miracle, Miracle's, Miracle's great. Um, Noah Emmerich's in that. And of course he's in, he's in the Americans. So, uh, so you end up yeah. working with the same, the same talent before. So, you know, are you, you end up working with the same talent again and, uh, you know, years go by and, and everything else. You're not necessarily lighting the person in the same way that you were, but you always want, you know, people to look their, their best or the most appropriate for the situation let's move into let's move into the americans which was uh was not long after suits so tell me about i mean the fifth season of that show is uh some of the most interesting and different sort of stuff like we get you get to go uh create russia create moscow which like before that any sort of references to sort of this time in of you know early russia in the the 1980s or or late 70s that the, the show plays and it's always in these little like uh, tiny flashbacks and vignettes. You're you're playing like you know uh, current time doing this. You know you got two different worlds going on. You've got the world of the, the U.S. in the mid '80s, and then you also have have Russia. Can you talk a little bit about setting that? Because that's you. There there wasn't that before. You got to establish that look. You got to to create everything. Yeah. Well, full disclosure. Full disclosure is that uh, Chris Long, our executive producing director, went to Russia for three days and shot for ninety six hours con- continuously. All of the shots of the guy walking across the bridge and all that, they shot at night and at night only. And literally it was three days and it was just Chris. They hired a, a cinematographer out of Moscow because I, I would have gone and done it, but I was, we were busy in Brooklyn shooting the show while this was happening. Um, so there are in season five, all throughout the episode, there are, there are segments of Chris's uh, Moscow experience. So that said, all the exteriors, yes, are are all are all real. I, I didn't the think they were real. I thought that was I thought that must have been New York or something. I thought you guys were faking it. No, and then no, and, and I was, was I was impressed at like I was I was impressed, but uh, but also there was probably a ton of stage stuff and and maybe a little location Tons. stuff that that you guys did that yes. that created the world of Moscow. So 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 I mean, yes. don't don't give away all the credit. You you you, you still <laughs> no no. I was gonna I was gonna take the credit for the interior stuff, which you know we had a great art department and so much. Much of the look of the Russia thing came from the things that they scoured whenever possible. I would use, use Russian fixtures, Rus- Russian lamps, practicals I'm talking about, desk lamps, uh, anything that I could get my hands on that was Russian. If we, we would uh, necessary, we would rewire stuff. We would just try to get it all working. And then to keep the Russia stuff feeling like green and cyan and a little off, like everything a little bit off, not full spectrum color, so that it always felt like it was starving of something. And then in the American sections, you know, it would be, it would be a little more flushed out and a little, a little richer. I think, I think the idea was not to make really any kind of comment. It was really just to differentiate the two looks. And, and we had a lot that we built for Russian stuff, which, you know, which had uh, uh, like a cyan highlights and it was a little bit greener, a little bit cooler in the shadows. And so that was the starting point. And then we would just shape everything based on that. But it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was certainly, it was, it was a, an amazing experience because we had this production situation a little bit unique. We had a stage on the Gowanus Canal, which if you know the Gowanus Canal, it's a EPA Superfund, one of the most polluted industrial waterways in our nation. And it's also in some of the most valuable real estate in our nation. And uh, we were shooting in this stage, which no longer exists. I believe it's now a water treatment plant, but it's called Eastern Effects. And they had, they had on one side of the canal, a bunch of warehouses that we used for all the American stuff. And on the other side, there was a smaller warehouse where we had all the Russian stuff. So we had these two literally separated by a canal. We had these two different worlds happening. Um, oftentimes there would be a unit shooting in each world because the characters very in, infrequently interacted with each other. It was wonderful for production because they could set up a whole splinter unit or a whole second unit and have the whole Russian cast available to us. So that was, that was a, a pretty interesting situation. Also the way culturally all the actors were Russian, right? They all were born in Russia and Russian was their first language. It's very interesting to see the difference on set. The Russians would always rewrite all their dialogue, all of it, they try to. And the reasons that they said was that this Russian is too formal. It's not the way we speak, this is the way we speak. Well, Joe and Joel, the, the, the showrunners of the show, 
wanted it specifically a certain way that people would have talked in the 80s, which is a much more conventional way. So the Joes made a rule and any Russian who wanted to change the dialogue had to do it within 48 hours of the day of shooting or there was no conversation at all. That put an end to it because they're very spontaneous. They never, you know, they wouldn't have looked at it and said, I got to say all that. They would just go ahead and say, I would never say their realms would be flying. I would never say this. I'd say this. We'd have these conversations, you know, a conversation that takes a half hour. That kills your day. <laughs> That's like, we don't have a half hour to talk about this stuff. We've got to, you know, we got to, we got to schedule. We got to keep going. Um, and so that was fun because it was always like two different shows in a way. Like you're, you're doing the Russian show today and the American show tomorrow. Fun, it's fun, it was a wonderful challenge. Dan, I think this is a wonderful place to leave it. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really glad that we had a chance to, to chat today. And I, I hope that maybe after the next season of The Boys or uh, at some point in the future, uh, you can come back and talk to us some more. I would love that, Ilya. Thank you for having me, Ilya, it was a pleasure. All right, so that was Dan Stoloff. Thanks so much, Dan. Awesome interview, Ilya. Now, short ends. Hey, Ben, it's that famous part of the show again. What uh, What's your obsession this week? So my short end is uh, something that I've been enjoying the beta program of for since you brought it up actually on this show. While we were talking about it, I was like, holy crap, and I signed up for it. And it was uh, Shot Deck, which is a brilliant idea that I can't believe no one else had ever done. Like, it's just one of those ideas that's just like kind of obvious, but also not as easy to implement well as Shot Deck has really implemented it. And it was created by cinematographer uh, Lawrence Schur. And what Shot Deck is, and anyone who's been in a situation where they were having to build a pitch deck or having to kind of come up with reference frames or whatever, we've all been kind of like randomly doing image searches on Google left and right. What Shot Deck did was it, it kind of created a brilliant way to consolidate, search for, find, create decks, create groups of images that are for, they could be for your pitch deck, they could be proof of concept to show people what you want something to look like, they could be, I mean, basically anything you wanted them to be. So Shot Deck has been around for, I don't know, probably about two years at least, maybe three, and they were beta, so it was free, and now it is a subscription service. But I think it's actually a really worthwhile subscription service to consider, and one of the cool things too is that you can do a year-long plan or you can do month by month, and I feel like if you're building a project right now and you just need it for a month, that's not a bad investment and a, not a bad way to like f be able to find a lot of stuff, organize a lot of stuff. And uh, they're constantly adding new features, new services. Like they're really trying to bring a lot of value for what they are doing. And I kind of just love the the approach because again, like I've used um, Pinterest basically when I'm when I'm putting together any project, I'll make a Pinterest board of stuff so that I can show it to people. This is a way more organized way to do that, and it's more kind of industry forward. Nothing against Pinterest, but it's a really great way to find images specifically pulled out of movies. And so you know, you could do a search for you know, I want a shot of somebody looking out a window on a wide-angle lens and the sun coming through the window, and there's a picture of that on there, like from a real project, from a movie or a TV show or a commercial or something. And there's new stuff being uploaded all the time. So definitely check out Shot Deck. And thank you again for uh, Ilya for making me aware of it. My pleasure. Uh, I, I really like Lauren Shear. I think that he is super talented and it's an incredible service for the industry. And it absolutely makes sense to me that he needs to put some money into it from the, I'm sure, thousands of people who have been in the beta program because I know it's getting used all the time. And he probably has all these plans to uh, expand and increase its functionality. And I wish him all the best. I really hope that it is uh, hugely successful and that, you know, it continues to grow and thrive and become a uh, stalwart industry resource. I'm looking forward to see what happens next. Yeah, we should get him on the show and get him to talk about it. Uh, absolutely. We should totally do that. Ilya, what is your short end today? I think I may have mentioned it in the past, maybe in passing. I don't think it was actually a, a short end for me, but a friend of the show, Rodney Charters, dropped by uh, Hot Rod Cameras the other oh, day. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it was cool. We got to catch up, and he showed me something really, really pretty amazing. It is a new light, and it's a light that is uh, like a 300-watt light, and I, I don't think it's it's terrible to say that it's like similar in sort of form factor and style to like an, an Aperture 300 light, but what's really interesting about this is uh, it's called the Orion 
300 FS, uh, which stands for full spectrum. So it's a light. It's a 300 watt light, has a Bowens mount in the front. It's got a separate ballast. It can be powered by either Anton Bauer or V-mount batteries. But what's interesting about it is it doesn't use any white LEDs for any of the colors or white light that it makes. In fact, it uses six different colored LEDs, all kind of packed tightly inside of uh, one small space. And so instead of saying like, you know, a lot of lights are RGB, red, green, blue, WW, or they're just a W, they're just a white, they're either a tungsten or a daylight. This is a, an RGB ACL, which stands for red, green, blue, amber, cyan, and lime. And using those six amber colors, and lime, it, that's new on me. I mean, cyan you come across in printing. I've just never heard amber and lime in a, in a lighting instrument. Amber has actually been around for quite a while, and there are some lights out there that are RGBA and RGBAWs. And uh, but but beyond all that, this is yes RGBACL, and it's really cool. Actually, it's a, it's a really great light, and it's not terribly expensive. It's a little over two thousand dollars. It's twenty one fifty, and I I will say that I'm so impressed by it that Hot Rod Cameras is now selling this product. Uh, Rodney Charter's incredibly convincing. He's been shooting with it and using it for quite some time, and I got to say that he's not wrong. It's a really really cool powerful compact rgb light that also does like incredible white ranges like a white light that's like 2000 kelvin which is way way warm to 20000 which is like way way blue and kind of everything in the middle plus it's got an app control plus it's got all the sort of uh, features and accessories you'd expect it's a really impressive light and uh, i think you're going to see a lot more of that coming here in the near future it's got some good industry people who've been consulting on it and uh, I'm really impressed. I can't wait to hear and see uh, more people using this thing because it's a it's a nice light to have in your kit. Doesn't take up too much space, doesn't take up too much power as you know, Bowen's mount, all the typical accessories. Really impressive. Uh, it's called a Pro Light. It's spelt strangely. It's P-R-O-L-Y-C-H-T, which I guess is German for light is what, I, what I've heard. But it, but it looks like Prolict is what it looks like, but it's Pro Light and it's called the Orion f 300 fs or full spectrum well i don't mean to be uh such a raving fanboy but if rodney charters likes something i assume <laughs> it's awesome rodney is uh, rodney knows his shit yes uh, rodney pops in every now and again i didn't and know that, like, that yeah he, I'm, no, he, po- he pops I'm so in. jealous like, I, I just want to hear him tell crazy <laughs> stories uh, well, well we, we don't always get into stories, but sometimes he'll be like, Ilya, I got to show you this cool piece of something. I got to show you this so thing cool. I've been working with. So, so no, he's, he's really generous. He's, he's really fantastic. No, I, I really appreciate him. And sometimes I, I show him things, which is which is always nice. We have a nice sort of like equal exchange. But he came in with this light and uh, showed me it's got this cool gobo attachment kind of thing. So it's a it's not quite like a, a Leco, but it's got a an iris and it's got a whole bunch of different sort of like uh, gobo frames that you can kind of pop in there or you know and uh it's got a fresnel and it's got soft boxes and it works with all the other sort of stuff out there that's in bowen's mount it's it it's fun it's an it's a cool light with all the sort of attachments that you'd want and it's not terribly expensive and uh i think it'd be yeah it would it'll plug into what anyone out there is doing especially if they're looking for something with lots of colors and effects and that sort of stuff that is awesome. Well, cool. Next time Rodney just decides to stop by, just please tell him I, I, I said hello. I, I always okay. remember the day that we uh, interviewed him, and then afterwards he wanted to go get lunch, and we went to the Federal and had lunch with Rodney Charters, and I was kind of geeking out the whole time. That's that's right. I, I forgot about that, but no, that, that's right. And, and that was t- tons of fun. I, I'm <laughs> just I'm such a raving fanboy of his work. He's an inspiration. He's amazing. So anyway, um, who do we have to thank today, as opposed to all the other times? <laughs> Hey, let's let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody, you know, producer, putting these shows together, keeping us busy with interviews. I think you even we did, did one today. Three interviews this week. I know, just this week. <laughs> and uh, th- that's not atypical, actually, for us. We've actually been doing a lot of interviews lately. So we've been doing more interviews since the pandemic started, way more than before, because we said, "Ah, fuck it, we'll do them on Zoom," and that opened us up to the whole world, not just people who happen to be in the metro LA area. That's true. And before that, we really did kind of turn up our noses at, at people who weren't uh, who weren't in the same room as us because like, we wanted to maintain. Oh, you're in Australia? No thanks. <laughs> yeah, NPR style quality, <laughs> and uh, frankly, you couldn't really do that as easily. And even now with the pandemic, for us to get high 
sound quality is a bit of a challenge, but I think we've, we're, you know, certainly punching above, above average. I think we're doing okay. So we're doing okay. I yeah. wonder, I, I know we're in the middle of thanks, but do you think we're ever going to return to, uh, you have to come to hot rod cameras and we're just going to interview people in your conference room ever again? Or do you think we're, we're going to be doing this, uh, you know, around the world kind of thing or a combo? Do you think we're going to go combo? I think it's going to be a combo. I've like already people are are talking to me about wanting to use the screening room at Hot Rod and people are talking to me about wanting to do in-person events at Hot Rod. So I think that those days are coming sooner rather than later. And, uh, you know, we have to do some still some basic precautions. But the truth of the matter is, is that for people who are vaccinated, the risks are extremely low now. And so a lot of in-person stuff starting to return, which is great. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly not against it. Went, went to the park today with my boy. No masks. It was all great. Anyway, uh, we should also thank Ben Katz, our intrepid, amazing editor, whose unenviable task is making you and I not sound like morons. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and let's thank Kay Zalatrachi, who composes uh, great music for us, has composed all the music you heard in this episode, but is probably not listening. 100% chance he did not listen to this episode. Yeah, uh, 100% chance, for sure. <laughs> uh, uh, Ilya, where can, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. Hot Rod Cameras sponsor the show. Yeah, I'm there Monday through Friday, uh, most of the hours, and sometimes some odd hours. And uh, if you want to talk about buying equipment, if you want to talk about uh, you know building a studio, uh, we do that on the regular. We're actually, God, we just did a, a massive, massive, uh, I can't say, I shouldn't say who the company is for because I didn't get their permission, but we just did a massive, massive package for them with a whole lot of Panasonic gear and a whole lot of Ooh. cook lenses and a bunch of other fun stuff. So I'm going to uh, ask you off mic. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and I think they're, they want to do a lot more of it with us. So, that, so that's been really good. So, yes, if you've got stuff in, in the works and you need some technical help or you just need help in putting the, the package together, uh, let us know because uh, that, that's what we do. That's that is absolutely what we do. We do it for governments and, and for universities and private corporations. And I'll stop talking about it myself now. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me at benrockonline.com and you can uh, there you can find all of my social medias. I'm on all the social media things that Gen Xers and older are on and none of the TikToks or uh, Snapchats that the younger people are doing. So, uh, you know. So you, so you don't have any shuffle on, dances and uh, I, dog I don't, filters I don't, going No on. pirate shanties. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I'm, no flossing, uh, no dabs. Okay. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't even know what the hell any of that is. But okay, awesome. I yeah. guess. <laughs> I guess I don't. Uh, um. <laughs> wait, wait till your kid gets a little bit older. You'll get all the lingo. Oh, uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to misuse the lingo like a weird parent in a John Hughes movie. Um, uh, anyway, so yeah, you, you can find me there. Befriend me on uh, you know the Instagrams or the Twitters or the LinkedIn, the linked in. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a, good, a thing. That's not a plural. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even even Facebook, you know, as long as you're not Trumpy, I'll probably say yes. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you'll yeah. say yes even if they're Trumpy. I know you. <laughs> I will not. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> what about uh, if they're a flat earther? If they're a flat earther, you're totally saying I'm okay yes. with flat earthers. Yeah. Oh, really? I'm okay with I'm <laughs> okay. okay with uh, yeah. I don't care if you believe the Earth is flat. You're a silly person, but that's <laughs> not like that's that's between you and your stupidity. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so glad I got this insight into you right now. Flat earthers, UFO people, you know, ancient aliens fans. I'm oh, a, ancient I'm a, aliens, I'm a fan of the TV huge show. Hot Rod Cameras customer, by the way. Are they? They are. I love that show. <laughs> yeah, me. Uh, I know that, you know, actually, I, I haven't really seen that show very much, but I, I know that you're Oof. a huge fan. That is like your, that's your, your, your crack. You, you love it. I nonstop, I yell at the screen like an old man yelling at the news while I watch Ancient Aliens the whole time. I, I love those people. They, they, they buy all their cameras from us. It's really great. It, it's a really well-made show. I'll just say that. Okay. Anyway, uh, that's enough of that. And we will see you next week here at the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.